right, so this is the last talk, and it will be fun. Sometimes, I, like, I have a funny role in this, this journey that we're going on through coffee, that I actually moved to the UK in 2011, and I was lucky enough to move to a city called Bath, which is a small place that not many people know. And as it turns out, Bath's actually pretty well-known for coffee. And so I was having the normal coffee day-to-day, -day and I Googled, I said, I need a good coffee. So I typed in good coffee bath. And somebody had directed me to Kalana and Smalls, where I met Maxwell Kalana Dashwood, who seems to be somebody that people in this room might know. Uh, and that was the beginning. So this talk is titled A Taste of Physics. Uh, I've got a say that I'm, I haven't done a talk to the coffee industry specifically besides the SCA educational talk in Seattle when I was there last and in Paris uh, yesterday. But I've decided that I'm going to present this the way that I would present a scientific lecture and we'll see how we go. Hopefully it's uh, lightweight and enjoyable. Uh, but as per every scientific introduction, we are almost obligated to tell you where we're from. So. This is Bath in the United Kingdom. From England. And your manservant would push you. Your manservant? Yeah, see with the handles on the back. So why do they call this a bath chair? There's a town in England called Bath, and it has hot springs. And the invalid used to go there to get cured. And where they would move them around was with devices like this. So this is Bath in the United Kingdom. This, it's a Roman city, it was founded in the year three. It's a beautiful place. Uh, the, all of the stone on the uh, outsides of each building, as you can see, for instance, in this one here, are a very particular type of spherical calcium carbonate. It's called an ooid, and it, we know it better as bath stone. So every building is built with this material, and it is a beautiful place to live. It's also famous for other things. This, uh, this weir right here, is actually the place where they filmed the, the scene where in Les Miserables, the new one, the police officer is so ashamed of himself at the very end that he throws himself into the water. So that was filmed here. It's not treacherous like it's depicted in the movie. It's quite nice. Uh, so yeah, so this is a nice place to be. Uh, the water is very hard. Uh, the coffee's pretty good. The good people, it's the size of 100,000. So you pretty much know everybody. That's where I come from at the moment. And <clears throat> I wanted to draw a parallel between, I suppose, what I do and perhaps what you guys do, and that science for me is usually a theory-based experiment. So we have some sort of accumulation of knowledge over many, many years, and we start to form theories based on this knowledge that we've collected from experimentation. And then we apply this to either explore new ideas or to perhaps apply them to old problems. So, or new problems, if you like, in this instance. Uh, what I'm going to be talking about today is indeed the application of old science to a new problem. Uh, but let's say that we explore new science, and we find something unusual that contradicts our theory. We go back and we, we revise the theory so that we can cycle back around, and it's self-consistent. And in the coffee industry, it's quite interesting. So actually, mo it operates much the same. So we have an experience-based... Uh, so we've, the arrow has gone rogue here, uh, experience-based uh, experiment. So we know that if we pull a shot too short and it tastes wrong, we're going to pull it a little longer next time, and maybe it tastes better. So that's, that's 
I guess, the general idea. Uh, the reason we do this is because, for instance, we might want a better product. I find the coffee industry really intriguing. Uh, that <laughs> This is the one I end up trying to defend most of the time, is try to fault other people's products. Uh, which I, it's, it's actually, I think it's conducive to progress. Um, but finally, once we've done all these experiments going down through perhaps flavor or uh, measuring something quantitatively with a VST refractometer, if you like, you get to the end and you form a theory based on your experience and this should loop back around and you should be able to test it over and over and over again. But Sometimes these two diverge, sometimes science and the coffee industry diverge, but we can probably all agree that we're trying to Step forward, right? We're trying to make progress. That's the idea. If we get stuck in the past, we're going to get into trouble. So my journey in coffee started at Max's shop uh, with an, an espresso roasted by someone uh, that I won't name that one day tasted like this. When it should have tasted maybe, I mean, this is representative. I don't know if you get an espresso that has all these wonderful flavors in it. Maybe. But anyway, uh, does it, anyone here know what salmiaki is? <laughs> Finish specialty. You mean you mean it's a niche, a niche market that doesn't travel well overseas. It's the worst flavored. This is awful. This is charcoal. This is a Brussels sprout, and this is actually a depiction of dirt. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So this is so the problem was I walk into the shop and I hear Maxwell communicating a problem. Right? And he's using language that I don't use. He says this tastes like uh, a whole bunch of words that I didn't understand because I didn't understand coffee at the time when he wanted it to taste something like this. And I'm sure that you all know the, that there's many variables that go into brewing coffee and we've just heard a very nice talk from Joanna on origin. Uh, but then there's of course dose and the grind, brew method and roast and everybody knows that this is something I talk about a lot, uh, water composition, brew time, temperature, flow rate, and whatever. And you, I was told that this is 20 minutes where I can say anything. It's, I get up here and talk. So today I'm going to focus on grind, which is not what people are expecting because I, <laughs> I am a chemist, right? And grind is physics. But I should also say that I do physics. So this is something that's, uh, that Max and I have explored and perhaps the reason for talking about this is because in the advent of social media, Max writes blog posts. And the blog posts attract some attention from special, specialists in the industry. And he wrote something on grinding. And it caused problems, uh, or maybe I would say uh, progressive conflict, between some people in the industry who were discussing grinders. That's a polite way of saying what actually happened. Uh, so I figured instead of going around, uh, beating around the bush here, let's just hit it head on with physics. And that will solve the problem for everybody. So first of all, before we start, we have to talk about the one technique that everybody knows, they've seen these graphs before, uh, which is laser, their laser particle analysis traces, which effectively is a machine, a laser particle analyzer is a machine that has a light, right? Uh, where are we? Yeah, there we are. So it has a light, and then you have par your particles bouncing around in the light, and they cast more or less, if you like, a shadow. And depending on where the light is, you can amplify the small ones because the shadow projects. So you can get really high resolution from an LPA. Now this is a really rudimentary example of how LPAs work. We can get far more complex. Uh, but in summary, the idea of what we're trying to do is to recover a distribution of the sizes of particles. So here's a little one and a bigger one, and we want to know how they 
relate to each other? Is there more of the big one or the little one? That's the idea. But there's a problem with laser particle analysis is that what you're looking at is size. And does something small act the same as something big? And the answer is actually no, and that applies to many, many things. So quantum dots act very different to a bulk material. This is one example of just butane, which at room temperature is what comes out of your hob and you, you can cook on it, it's a gas. Octane is a liquid at room temperature and it goes into your car and powers your, powers your vehicle. So these two have a very fundamental property, a gas to a liquid transition, and without knowing too much chemistry, you can see that this one is just double the squiggle of that one, okay? So now, laser particle analysis doesn't go quite this small. It doesn't go to the molecular level. That's not what we're trying to achieve. But what I'm trying to illustrate here is that, indeed, this is, this, the variance that we're looking at here is something that shows two properties deviate with size. So, I know another guy who's Australian, whose name's Matt, and Matt published something online, I think it was some blog post, if, if you like, that showed a graph that looked like this, which was the output of a laser particle analysis from an EK-43, which I think is a grinder. Uh, so with coffee burrs, I didn't, at the time, I didn't even know burrs looked different. I don't know. Anyway, so, so the point is that EK-43 with coffee burrs dialed into some arbitrary number that made coffee apparently taste good. And the output of the laser particle analyzer, it gives you a volume percent. Right? And a volume percent is if you were to take one, like one milliliter in volume, uh, not as a liquid, just one milliliter of space, so one cubic centimeter, and look at what particles make up that space, that this would give you the distribution of those particles. So it shouldn't be surprising that a really big particle will occupy a lot of volume. It's pretty, pretty obvious, right? So you look at this guy here, that big peak right there occupies a lot of volume. So to give you an example of that, this cube has eight of these little cubes in it, but these ones are, uh, of course, much smaller and have much smaller volume. This is all that we were reported and the, at the time, and a big conclusion was made that from here to here, that this region was what was called a good distribution or an even particle size distribution. I didn't know what that meant. I, st I still don't. The, uh, this, the point is, is that, that that was the language used to describe this. But when I think about coffee, I think we're trying to do an extraction. And in chemistry, when we do an extraction, the goal is to get 100% of what you're trying to extract out from that object. So this is an unusual property because if we're looking at volume and we assume that this thing is a, is a, a dense solid, which indeed coffee is relatively dense, uh, we don't really care about volume Initially, what we really care about is surface area. So you can renormalize this graph, which is a volume percent graph, to show you surface area. And this may be surprising uh, that indeed with surface area, this is the contribution to surface area, that tiny little sort of hip right here becomes a very, very large peak in surface area. And that makes sense. If I take a big particle and crack it in half, and you have tiny little ones breaking down the edges there. The little ones don't occupy very much space in volume, but they, there can be lots and lots of them, and relative to their volume, they have very high surface area. And as it turns out, I, arbitrar I had to pick, so I, this is another nomenclature problem, boulders versus uh, fines. Fines I defined as anywhere be below this point here. It just turns out with coffee that this point exists for pretty much every 
being that's ground, I don't know why there's a dip there. I, I have no idea. It's something, it must be something to do with the way the bean shatters. Maybe it's exactly half the size of an average bean. I don't know. It's, it's not exactly clear to me. Uh, or maybe it's half, you know, an eighth or whatever, some sort of harmonic. But anyway, from there downwards, in the fines region, on a typical grind that tastes good, actually, the surface area is 75% made up of really small particles, roughly. And only these boulders, the things that we usually hear about people sifting for, sieving for rather, is only about 25%. So 25% from there upwards in surface area. And that number is pretty important because if you think about it as people are afraid of fines, in reality what you're actually extracting from is fines. And to give you another metric, if you were to say how many, for every one particle of this, just like the highest in, in uh, diameter, how many of these ones do you have? And the answer is for every one of these, the biggest one in your grind, you have 100 million of the other ones. So that's a, that's a very big number. So these ones really do make up a lot of your grind. For comparison, here's a couple of other grinders just to show you that whilst the negligible differences down here don't look like much and it looks massive up here, it turns out that the Rover actually makes more fines than any other grinder on the market that we've tested so far, anyhow. And those differences are so small, but it actually is from this, this difference here and this difference here. And that, that's striking. That's, that's the idea is that we're exploring something that's very, very small, and it, the very small differences make a very large difference on what you're trying to extract. So what affects this distribution of particles, right? So why, why does this peak shift around? Can we choose to shift it left or right? And of course, uh, you guys probably are all aware that indeed the grinder makes a big difference. The burrs are made differently, the grinder is different, and so on. Humidity, uh, if something is wet, it's going to grind very different to if something is dry. You see those guys grinding uh, holes in cement as you're walking by, and it's always wet. And that's partially to keep the small particles down, but it's also because it grinds differently. Uh, temperature, uh, this is something that I'm not going to discuss at the moment in great detail, because we're, we've got ongoing experiments to solidify, truthfully solidify this, but I can speculate that if you grind something hot, hot things are usually more malleable, so they're less likely to shatter. So when something shatters, you see fine particulates flying all over the place, whereas when something is hot, it actually breaks more homogeneously. So we would speculate that temper higher temperature grinding reduces the amount of fines that you, you make. But that, this is something that's work in progress. Uh, of course, recipe. So you may grind it coarser, for instance, for filter, or you may grind it finer. I, I don't know what your recipe is, but of course that changes where those peaks are in that graph, and the bean origin and so on. They may all grind differently. This is something, this is beyond me at the moment. I think this is a, a great undertaking to explore this. So now we've got the coffee ground, and it has some distribution. What are we going to do with it? This is the thing that I really want to talk about today. Mutation, I didn't think was a word. <laughs> and my housemate is a very smart guy, and he didn't think it was a word. We, we, we were wrong. Mutation is a word. Uh, for those that are not familiar with it, it is the idea of circularly rotating something to compact. That's the, that's the concept. Uh, I think this was popularized by that Australian guy. Uh, this vibration, of course, is indeed what it says. Uh, gyration. Gyration is similar to mutation, except for it's not mechanical. It's through forces. Uh, if I were to spin a ball in my hand like that, as opposed to be inside the ball pushing it outwards, if you, if you get what I'm 
sort of trying to trying to say here. Yeah, it's tricky. And finally, compaction, which would be tamping. Uh, this is the fun part. Time for the physics. 2001, there was a Nature paper. Nature is a, a scientific journal that we, we like to read that published an article called The Brazil Nut Effect, Size Separation of Granular Particles. Brazil Nut Effect is interesting. So in 1937, a scientist sitting around opens a can of mixed nuts and sees that the Brazil nuts are all sitting on the top. And most scientists, like they do in coffee, don't think too much about stuff and they just drink the coffee and carry on. These scientists sat there like I would have and got, why are the Brazil nuts on the top? It's, as you can read here, the, it, effectively what this is saying is that if you've got a mixture of different sized particles and you vibrate it, something might happen. So, they might randomly distribute, they might, the big ones might raise to the top or the big ones might sink to the bottom. And it's not obvious. So in the Brazil nut effect, the Brazil nuts rise to the top. So the, this is to illustrate, if we started here and we start to do some sort of mechanical motion to this bed of particles, are these black dots gonna raise up or are they gonna sink to the bottom? Turns out, the answer is not as obvious as I thought. In fact, this is not a solved problem. So there's been a lot of physics going into this. Here we go. For a particle to move upwards, the one working theory at the moment, one of two, is a process called percolation. So upon what we're going to now call a tap, which has to be defined as a process of lifting such that this object is no longer in contact with my hands. So this is not really tapping, this is just moving it, right? A tap needs to be so that the particles lift up in the air away from each other. So that would be a tap as opposed to this, right? This is just merely a translation. This is me carrying my espresso basket around. That's not a big deal. It's only when I go that it makes a difference, okay? So percolation. The idea is that as you lift everything, as you tap, I've only shown this part moving because I did this by hand, but imagine that every single one of these lifts up at the same time. This guy, the big, the big black guy right here, keeps moving up and gives the little ones an opportunity to slot in below it. And if it's, they sl slot in below it, then the, the big piece will stand on the shoulders of the little pieces and slowly lift up. Pretty, pretty straightforward. Now in physics, actually, I like this. I think we should say this for coffee as well, that big particles are not called boulders. They're called intruders. So I'm going to refer to big particles as intruders from now on. Uh, another idea of upward motion is convection. Now this is a really nice idea. So that not only are we now considering the process of going up with the tap, but the tap actually, of course, is going downwards, right? That's the idea. The tap is going down when you, when you touch it, which means gravity must be affecting these particles as well. And indeed, the particles that start on the edge of the vessel progress downwards, as you can see with the red ones, down the edge, and when they hit the bottom, they loop back around and push up through the middle. So that's the idea, is that the middle particles will go up, and the edge particles go down, and they cycle around like this. Just like heat, like riptide, so on. So let's have a closer look at this, at convection. The idea is quite simple, that it's the particles, the convection pathway is only as big as the particles touching the, the wall. So if you have very little particles touching the wall, then the convection pathway is only the size of these red ones. And therefore, of course, they loop around and go up through the middle, as you can remember. 
So the big ones will get pushed up through the middle, and then they'll progress out to the edge. The reason the big ones then no longer sink is because they're actually greater than the width of the convection pathway downwards, which means that every time they try to go down, they run into particles also convecting upwards as well as down, and they just end up sitting where they are. So that's another idea of how particles that are big might float upon agitation. There is, here's a product placement. People who make things should take notes on this next slide. It's a good idea. There is a way of reversing convection pathways just based on geometric shape of the vessel. I showed you this example, which is a, a cylinder with a closed bottom at left and right side. And upon vibration, convection circles like this. If you do this in a cone, convection circles the opposite way, just because of physics. Let's leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> What this means, though, is a very powerful, it's very powerful. Imagine that you had an espresso basket. So this, this product does not exist. So imagine you had an espresso basket that you put your, your, your grinds into, and then you deliberately vibrated it a lot. That would mean that the boulders, the intruders, would sink to the bottom, and they would stick right at the point. But that's very interesting because one of the major criticisms of V60 is the particles at the bottom overextract at the point where the water is touching it most. So you could theoretically design an espresso basket that had the big particles at the bottom, the little ones going up the sides with variable hole density to let the water flow out of it and tamp it. You get the idea. It's a good idea. All right. Uh, so I'll leave that to someone who can be bothered making it and telling me I'm wrong. Um, downwards motion. This is interesting. Buoyancy. So let's say I start to vibrate this bed a lot. Now those particles are sort of flowing like this. They're not really touching each other anymore. They're just up, they're just in space, if you like. And at that point, it acts more like a liquid than it does as a solid. And this is a really interesting problem because what this means is if, if these big ones here are more dense, they're going to sink. And also, you might just get a random distribution. So now, the physicists are simple people. You see, when this paper was published, they, they literally took a bucket and shook it to see if they could ever represent what happened. So here's the big, big guys starting at the bottom, and you can see them migrating to the top with some taps. But here's an example of big guys starting at the top and migrating down to the bottom. Now, there is some other things we have to consider, like friction and so on, but let's just assume that this is all based on density. So this is a different material to this. And you can see, hopefully, where we're going with this, that coffee is not a different material. A big piece and a little piece should more or less, more or less have the same density. There is one more thing to consider, though, and I'm sure you've all run into this before, <clears throat> that when you tap your espresso basket downwards, sometimes you notice that it lifts up on one side or lifts up on the other side. And actually, that's not your problem. That's actually a physics problem. Because uh, this is so, I don't like to use jargony words like the Faraday effect. Faraday was a, a guy who's well known for electricity. Uh, but what this is, is saying that these convections are not identical because this bed is not identical. And if there is holes in the bottom that allow air to flow up through this bed as you tap, which there are in an espresso basket, of course, the air can have a bias to perhaps push this side up a lot more. And what you end up getting is this. If you were to put your hand on the bottom of the espresso basket and you put your hand on the top and tap, you would not get this angling because there's no air convection pathways that push, these, push the convection process up on the edges. Uh, but one comment is that the, if this is a big particle, it's a little hard to see. If you do the vibrations, even in a non-flat bed, the big guys still go straight up in this instance. 
Okay, so this is under the regime where they're not a free-flowing liquid. This is them slowly mi migrating up somehow. Okay, so how about sideways tapping? Well, the physicists have considered this as well. So if you start with a big particle in the middle and you start tapping, and this happens to be of lower density, it will progress its way to the outside. And if you start with a particle on the outside that has higher density, it will progress its way into the middle. In, uh, in this paper, they also discuss equally dense materials. And they say that big, equally dense particles progress towards the middle. That's not as clear cut as what they say. I'm going to be a little critical here. That's not as obvious. But the main conclusion is this. So bearing in mind this, this d distribution we had earlier from an EK, for instance, this is the density ratio. So we want to look at the one region, which means that the, one, the ratios are the same. In fact, the material is equally dense, despite whether it's big or small. That's the idea. So we're going up here, uh, up here. This is the diameter ratio. So you have something small, uh, sorry, one to one, excuse me. And if you tap something that is one to one, of course it's going to be indifferent where those particles go because it's, they're one to one. It doesn't make any difference at all. But if you tap these particles uh, where you have a very large particle, let's say six times the size of the large one to the smallest ones in there, they, this is for the, they always will sink. Is, is the take-home message. So this, this, this centering or the sinking are the same process, so what says centering here would be sinking. Uh, sorry, they will always float, excuse me. Excuse me, they, they will always float. The Brazil nut effect, the thing that we think, the fines migrate to the bottom is the thing that everyone talks about, okay? So if you have big particles in a mix with little particles, the big ones will float. That's the take-home message. But they don't because you have to tap it about 50 times in order to, to observe this process of migration. Under the regime of tapping five times, which would be probably the upper limit of any of you guys tapping this, this coffee, maybe 10 even, but they'd be small, all you're doing is increasing packing density. Now, this is unpublished because what we're trying to do here is a computational model that shows very clearly that I have a box with suspended spheres in it, and this is running at the moment on the national supercomputer, and I apply gravity, it settles, and then I apply a little bit of force upwards in this box and watch it resettle, and I can measure all of the empty space. And I can show that every time I tap it upwards like this, and they all lift and settle, that the density will f eventually equilibrate to a high-density material, and then you'll start to see convection of whatever direction it is. But this does not happen in the time scale, so 50 taps it re is required for it to get to the point where you start to see things actually moving. So the summary of this talk so far, I guess, well, to conclude, if you like, is what do we actually want from a grinder? So I've told you a lot of physics, now what do you actually want? Well, I can tell you definitively what you do not want is a big difference between your largest particle and your smallest one. What you want them to be is all the same. So that when you do anything, when you tap, or when you uh, sideways, I don't know what you call that, when you mutate, whatever, what you're trying to do is increase packing density to get it homogeneous so you don't have regions of space like this and then regions of high, uh, low density or high density, excuse me, space here. And the reason for that is because when water flows in, it sees this large particle and has to find a pathway around it at the beginning the very beginning, the water has to find a way out, right? Sure, coffee swells, it absorbs, and of course the water goes in and pulls flavor out, of course. But from a physics perspective, at the beginning, it has to find a way through. And these guys act as flow restrictors 
So the little particles pack very tightly around the big ones, and what you have is actually less space for the water to flow through. So what you want, ideally, is the difference between the little one and the big one to be negated, to be minimized. That doesn't make any comment whatsoever on what size the little one has to be, just to be very clear. It is the grinding mechanics of what size you want for espresso is totally up to you. All you want is them to all be roughly the same size. That's the, that's the take-home message. Uh, so with that, I didn't talk about water today, but I'm sure we can talk about it in the bar or something. Uh, but I, uh, I should acknowledge that the work that I do is funded by the European Research Council, which means, as I always do, I endeavor to do everything for free. So when you ask me a question, we try, I try and make it public so that I never have this proprietary information. So the water stuff is all free. I want you to all read it. I want you to all benefit from it. With this, I'm happy to discuss it, and I can provide you with the scientific literature that you may not have access to, because I, I do indeed, of course, working at a university, as, as do you. Uh, and it is our, it's our initiative, because you pay our wages to provide it to you. So, so please ask questions. Please don't hesitate. Even, even something that's not related to water or grinding coffee is not outside my remit as a scientist, and no doubt as uh, if I can't do it, someone else can. So I would like to thank you for giving me, as a representative of the European Research Council, an opportunity to come here. Hopefully it was enjoyable, something a bit different perhaps to uh, hardcore coffee and maybe a little more physics. And uh, yeah, so thank you. Thank you, Chris. That was amazing. Cool, man. All right. Now, questions. I have so many. Hi. Um, that was really interesting. Um, I think that you were mentioning the Maxwell, uh, say, blog about the black matter of the grinding. That's and right. the other one is from Mark Perger, Marat Perger uh, talking about the fines and the morphology of the grind and try to keep, make it even. How um, advanced do you think it's going on? Uh, oh, sorry, I'm going to rephrase that. How uh, far do you think we are from getting like uh, really stable grind? Or or kind of like studies going on about that or not really? So the, uh, I speak with grinder manufacturers. And main, I try and stay away from the sales representatives. I speak to the engineers who actually design these burrs. And it seems that when a burr works, it's an accident. So the answer to your question is, I don't know how far away we are from getting a grinder that can grind exactly the same every time. In pharmaceuticals, it definitely exists. Right? We use, it's a different method though, right? The idea is totally different, but in pharmaceuticals we use a high-pressured air and we, we, we rotate the, uh, the object we're trying to, to grind down to a sphere by rotating it under high-pressure regime and it spins and spins and spins and eventually you get it very small to the size or whatever size you want if you like, polishes it if you like. That works on some material. Can it work for coffee? Probably not. It's probably not feasible in a shop for, or in a, you know, yeah. So in terms of understanding packing, that's easy. Like, you know, it's, uh, we'll know soon enough. The computer will tell us and it will be a relatively good model. We're trying our best to do that. Grinding manufacturing is not as clear cut. But I, I like working with them. 
because when something does go wrong, it's usually more interesting. Yeah. How much work has been done on uh, the taste properties of Unimodal? Because I, I have a bit, a little bit of a problem. Is I've done some sieving experiments, basic barista type experiments, you know, pocketbook science. But a lot of my experiences of those Unimodal style espressos, yeah, tend to lack the. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to say, and then Dave Walsh will take the mic, but about the depth and the um, the complexity of the espresso. And, and Dave Walsh famously said on one of the Tampa Tandas once, you know, complexity, having a turd in a swimming pool is complexity. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I liked it a lot, but I, I, I worry sometimes about that the... We, we're trying to fix the problem before we've really experimented and spent a lot of time on the uh, sensory side of it. Sure. So which, which unimodal did you go for? Well, well, this is from sieving experiments. So this is from grinding so and sieving. Did you keep the big, the big stuff in the sieve or did you keep the little stuff outside? Well, we, we kept the middle stuff that was meant to be the, the stuff that you should be keeping, allegedly. And again, yeah, sure. and, and, but also we've done some experiments with the, the big and the smaller ones. And this was just like yeah. pocketbook science. Sure, again. sure. So, I mean, it's a good question. As, as I, I guess the take-home message from that is what size do you want? Is, is really saying, is there one size? Uh, I, can, I can just, I can't speculate on that, the flavor profile. I can tell you that little ones extract quickly because heat transfer in these little particles is, is very rapid. Whereas the bigger ones are, is also very rapid, but it's of order of magnitude, if not more time scale. I can also draw your attention to the, the, the axis here. So the difference between, this is a logarithmic axis, which means that it's an order of magnitude every step. So the difference between one and 10, as we know, is simply one, two, three, four, whatever. But the difference between 10 and 100 is halfway here roughly is 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, so on. So this peak here is really, really broad. So if it looks unimodal up here, does not mean it's really actually of any particular size. It's more an, a very clean distribution of little ones to big ones. And the main problem we were looking at before is the ratio between uh, the smallest one here, which would hypothetically be 100, and the biggest one, which would be 1,000 in that instance, if we were to take the smallest and the biggest. And that's uh, 10 times, right? And in our previous graph, we looked at a situation where six times was a problem. And this is bigger than that. So I can only speculate that you want to keep it closer together than that. I don't know which, I don't know which range it is, but that's, that's what I'm trying to get at is okay. probably keep it somewhere between, you know, maybe one to two or one to three, I don't know, but yeah. Questions? Please. Yes, to, to see if I understand it right. Say now when we don't have a perfect grinder and the particles will be different, would it be better to go back to having like a cone-shaped vessel? I, well, I, I like the idea Sorry? of it. But <laughs> I think it would be awesome. But <laughs> just imagine the tamper. Imagine how hard, you can't even, um, the Australian guy has a tamper you can't put down anywhere. You have to hold it in your hand the whole time, otherwise it's useless. Imagine the one that has a point. <laughs> Where do you put that thing? I don't know. So I think it would be amazing. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, it's not that hard to manufacture. I think somebody will try it at some point. And vi put it in like a vibrating we, we have these things called sonicators in, in the lab. They're used to help dissolve uh, materials. They just vibrate effectively. Just put, if, if someone made one, you just put it in a vibrating bed, get everything to eventually settle where it wants to, 
and then see what happens. I, I reckon it could be pretty cool, but I, I don't know. I think Reg Barber would enjoy trying to make that tamp. He would, wouldn't yeah, he? Yeah, you know, he'd definitely get on his lathe and sort it out. Uh, other questions? <laughs> Shahal? Oh, oh, we're going no, up sorry, behind no. you first. Shahal will be next. <laughs> oh, yep. I, um, hi. I'm wondering if uh, there is not a certain amount of fines preferable to have for, yeah, it's like Stephen said, for the depth, or what do you think? Don't different particles give different part of the overall yeah. profile? Yeah, so, so actually different sized particles do extract differently. So little ones, this, this is one thing I, I sh probably should have concluded with, is that little ones, they reach, let's say you're brewing, pulling a shot at 95 degrees, which is high, but it's an easy number. So let's say you pull a shot at 95 degrees, the little one is going to rapidly, very, very rapidly get to 95 degrees. The bigger one is going to take a very, very small amount, but a noticeable amount longer to get to 95 degrees on the inside. Now these differences in time are very small, but it means that the little one is hotter for longer. Not that much hotter for longer, but these particles aren't very big. So if you're looking for an extraction and you can get the temperature up very quick on them, that you get more solubility from things that need to be, or that are kinetically limited. So you need the energy there just to, just to force them into the, the, into the liquid. So for instance, the typical over-extraction flavors, which you'd associate with cellulose and things that are only vaguely soluble in, in, in water, if you like. Uh, so the little ones, yeah, so the little ones over-extract very quickly, but you then have to mediate how little's little. So you're gonna find a sweet spot where no longer is the little one actually over-extracting, and that's what you guys do every, every day, right? Yeah, I understand that, but probably my question was not only about the fines, but about the boulders and about the fines, and together, and they do something together. I, I'm not able to explain quite, but I think that it's, it, it, it just deepens, it makes the whole profile that's what I... Yeah, so I think I some, people, some people like the flavor of over-extracted and under-extracted in the same cup, which the boulders, if it, you could theoretically achieve such a thing, right? So the little ones, if you, if you made, if you put one coffee bean, a whole bean, into a cup, or you just ground it by hitting it with a hammer, the, and then drop that in, those pieces would definitively be under-extracted relative to the ones that are over-extracted. And some people do like this idea of a balance between, that's a very large-scale representation, but you get the idea that the big ones could very well be under, and the little ones could be over, and somehow we have a palette for the middle of those two. Yeah. So I, I, it's a philosophical question, though, because you never know whether you like those two, or whether you like the, you can achieve exactly the same, ex exactly the same extraction with a homogeneous grind. I, I, I don't know the answer to this. I would assume not, but please. Shall yeah. Thank in you. A way, yeah. You know, it's a quite a similar subject as we had just before on the pure origin. You know, do you want to have a pure single origin that you roast? Do you have? Do you want to have a pure single size distribution that you extract, mm -hmm. or do you blend your coffee, or do you have a distribution of your grind? Right. You know, so you have like. It's a, it's a good analogy, and, right? Yeah. But my question was actually different. Do you think that the whole game will change if you do a pre-brewing, a pre 
you know, like you wet first the whole bed at low pressure and you don't push it through, you just let it extract, like suck, suck the water and you do the extraction later, the whole game will change, will be different thing. The yeah. size doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, so, so the, uh, uh, there's been stories of people who have never brewed on a pre-infusion espresso machine and they get to a competition, for instance, and then all of a sudden they have only been working on these machines that just go bang water, and there's coffee, and then they have this one that has like five seconds of water just sort of sitting in the bed getting, getting everything ready to go, uh, and they do different things. Uh, the process of pre-infusion, to my knowledge, is wetting the bed, letting it absorb some water, the coffee expands and changes and so on. And yes, of course, the pathways, now there's water in there, these things are moving a little more, and so it's not as clean cut as like, yeah, this is, this is the packing, it's gonna be this pack the whole time. Uh, yes, I do think it changes, and I do think that, that that is indeed something very interesting. I don't know how to model it, except maybe I could expand my particles in, in, in the model, right? That would be a very interesting idea is to, to include just a, a spontaneous expansion at some point and see what happens to everything, which would be, yeah, I mean, we can definitely do it. It's a cool idea. Yeah. I just wanted to uh, like ask about the, having larger particles and smaller particles and, and like something that is very under-extracted and something that would be over-extracted and then you would basically uh, achieve a good extraction, which would be the average, but in reality, how I see it and, and understood it, it's basically you have a lot of different extractions and if you measure it with a refractometer, you just get an average of all of those. And that doesn't mean the old coffee is actually tasting good. If you have something that is very under-extracted and something very over-extracted, even, right. even if you would hit 20%, it's going to taste very different compared to more even grind size at sure. 20%. Sure. It's definitely, it's definitely uh, yeah, it's, de it's a good point. It's definitely different extractions. So... I, I guess I, one illustration, which happens to be on this slide still, is that people have m been making good coffee, well, hold on, people have been making coffee, up to you whether it's good, with rovers for years, like they've been around a long time. There's definitely shops, I know in London there's shops that fit out with a linea and a rover, and that's what they do, right? And, they, and, the, and you can get a good coffee there. So rover is by far the least homogeneous in terms of particle size by a long shot. So what I, when I'm saying that we should all, when I'm going a little fascist here and saying one particle size, I don't actually mean, yeah, I, I don't necessarily mean one is the best. I just, it would, it's just something to think about. Uh, indeed, maybe it, I'm totally wrong, and that would be awesome too, because then, then we can not worry about grinders anymore, right? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. That, that would be awesome. So, yeah. Something tells me that we will still worry about it. Somehow, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, question up there, and um, we're going to be breaking to the panel and finishing up in a moment. So. Cool. You touched on um, the concrete cutting, and I remember a few years ago, Marco, were talking about making a, an Uber brewer or something, with, and they did a little demo with grinding through a Hario grinder with a drill and hot water. Is that, do you think that it's, it's a, it could be a realistic solution to some of this problem? So just to like, give you some background on this yes. one as well, so you, you have some history. This was Dave Walsh's talk at Tampa Tantrum in Dublin about three, four years ago, and it was very much tongue-in-cheek. It wasn't, we're working on this. It was looking at 
this could be something that it was a brewer and a grinder at the same time. So you were grinding within the hot water oh. um, as a way of, and he's kind of showed that it he, he was a way of cutting down on, you know, shards breaking off during the grinding because of the, the method that you've said already about the concrete. Did, did you say he did it with a drill? So he, no, he had a drill attached to a hand grinder. Oh, was, yes, to spin I, it. I, see. Yes, yeah. I thought you meant he ground it with a drill. I was like, oh, I would have loved to have seen that. That would have been awesome. Uh, uh, interesting point. Uh, <laughs> His argument was that we brew with water. Right. Like, so why don't we well grind, with, grind water? with water? So, so, yeah, so uh, it's an idea. I think that experimentation with that one would be the best way to solve, to at least give us a good direction so we can start base, basing a theory on something. Because at the moment, that would be based on something that's far-fetched that we don't do. So it, an experiment would be a good starting point. I should say, though, that grinding things is easier when they are wet. So grinding, I had this idea of grinding green coffee and then roasting it. And I would love to talk to you about this. Uh, that it does actually save you a lot of energy in the, in the roasting process because roasting a fine takes, uh, you can do it in under 25 seconds. You know, it's very fast. But is that a good thing? Do you, do you get a better grind, a uh, more homogeneous grind from a wet green bean? Yes, you do. There's more water in that. You get, it's definitely a very tight distribution. Is it a good thing? Is it feasible? I don't know. But it's certainly something I've explored, the idea of hydration and grinding at the same time. So maybe it's intrinsic hydration in the bean, or maybe it's extrinsic from inclusion of water. It's, it's an interesting idea. Well, Chris, as always, it, uh, yeah, I'll go on one more. That one will allow the one more. All right. Uh, well, there are places in London uh, that actually, when they grind, they use like a colander, yeah. like a, with microns. So basically, it's like the most accurate, let's say, no fines at all, like you can get. There are a lot of people doing that now. Like yeah. Getting this, but take time because. Yeah. So difficult. Yeah. And I tried also the, that, let's say, um, technique. Yeah. And like you said, it's totally different. The, the coffee you can get from the grinder uh, and with this method, it's like totally different. The same coffee with the same grinder, but after this, it's totally different structure. Even, even the structural levels go up. Yeah. So I don't know. So, there's explanation for that, like in the physics. So yeah, there is. So there's two problems that you've posed there. The first one is that small particles are susceptible, highly susceptible, as you all know, to static. So they stick to just about everything. So when, and little particles actually stick to big ones too. So when you when you're sieving for for fines, if you like, most of those fines are actually associated with bigger particles. They're stuck to them. But in water, they are liberated. They're free to, to, to do what they like. Uh, I'm familiar with this shop, one, at least one of them. Uh, they use 137 micron size sieves, which is an interesting size because that's slightly larger than that little dip, which I, I described as my arbitrary fines cutoff. But it does mean that what you're left with should be, should be part of, oh yeah, here it is. Uh, this dip here, which then equates to that dip there. Uh, what it does mean is you're left with this, right? And the little particles that are stuck to those ones. And that's interesting. And uh, I don't know if actually sieving for fines does achieve, does achieve, uh, I mean, it, it, it definitely gets rid of 
some fines because that's what you're doing. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you get rid of some of this. You, you negate some of it down. It, it'll drop. But you don't get, I'm sh certainly you do not get rid of all of them and certainly you'd get a different flavor out of it. The same shop grinds all filter coffee on the same setting and then sieves. So every single one goes through the, through the, the EK and then they just sieve and they, whatever comes out of it is what they get. The thing is, is that I'm almost certain that bean to bean, as in even in the same origin, in the same everything, on the same plant, two beans will never grind the same. Which means that if you take two grinds today and tomorrow and the humidity changes, or today and tomorrow and whatever, and you're sieving, that doesn't mean that this peak stays in the same place. That can be shifting all over the place. So you're still sieving for fines, so you're getting rid of some of this, but you're, this thing's not even remotely in the same location. So it is something, it is something to consider. I, uh, I'm working with them uh, on this. So, yeah. I think there's also an argument that if we actually fix this grinding issue, that espresso machines may need revisiting as well at the way that they work yeah. and the way that, that they're going to you know, deliver espresso. And it could be if we fix the grinder part, actually we break some other parts of the chain yeah. along the way. And I've certainly heard that used as an argument. Yeah. Did you, uh, did you see Max's latest blog? I, I don't want to be a, a stickler for this, but he has moved to 15 gram baskets. And the problem is he grinds as fine as he can possibly grind, and he's got issues with getting the extractions to where he wants them to go. And it's because, indeed, when you're, when you're changing the way you grind, you have to revisit how you actually brew coffee. And so his result was that he had to just lower the pressure so that water was in contact with the coffee longer. That was his solution. I, and it, it, that was actually proposed to him by Matt Perger that to do that because indeed that's a problem just so the, and, and, and yeah of course technology has to develop as one moves they all move together yeah so yeah well chris a fantastic presentation that i'm sure uh, me and Calais are going to quiz you on in our panel discussion in just a few seconds but cool. please give it up please chris hendon